Uh, a very good morning to everyone present here, especially to our guest speakers, Professor Jyotish and Professor Chinoy. Uh, this is the fourth and final episode of the Jinder Center for Global South podcast series. Uh, today's topic is a really interesting topic personally for me, and hopefully through this discussion as well, we will know. It is about the vaccine inequality in the uh, post-pandemic world and even as we see now during the pandemic world. Uh, a brief introduction to our guest speakers. Uh, Professor Jyotish is a political economist and he holds a PhD in economics from the Jawaharlal Nehru University. Uh, he has also done work for uh, work studying contemporary capitalism and especially in the context of the global south. Uh, Professor Chinoy has also done her PhD from the Jawaharlal Nehru University and holds a master MPhil from the University of Columbia. She is the former Dean of the School of International Studies at JNU as well. Uh, thank you, Professor Chinoy. Thank you, Professor Jyotish. It is an honor to be able to host this session with you. Uh, I would just like to give a very brief introduction to uh, vaccine inequality as we see it today. Uh, I believe it's, it's very easy to say for us that the, the, the glaring inequalities in vaccine distribution that we see today were accentuated during the global pandemic. Uh, in March 2020, the world went into a lockdown. Uh, international flights were suspended and we were locked into our homes for isolation, quarantining and so on. Uh, luckily, and it is it is considered to be a scientific breakthrough that we had vaccines so early on, I believe. And uh, the first vaccines came as, far, as early as nine months into the pandemic. Um, but the large problem that we did see was the distribution of these vaccines. Uh, primarily because we do not have the technology to transport some vaccines at very low temperatures across the globe, but also because uh, developed and uh, richer economies started holding vaccines for the future, sometimes even having vaccines four times the population of their countries. Uh, this issue was uh, further accentuated during the second wave, uh, as we say, of the pandemic, which was, uh, which was mostly caused by the Delta variant of COVID-19. Uh, during this time, the WHO, uh, global organizations, and, and developing also countries. asked for uh, vaccine inequality throughout the globe. Uh, today's discussion will primarily be on the topics of vaccine inequality, but also about how it affects the global south. The global south is a developing region, a region that has a young population, a working population, and a population that definitely needs to be vaccinated against any such virus that causes disruptions in the economy and so on. And uh, so ending with my introduction, I would request Professor Jyotish to please start. Hi, uh, this is uh, Rohit and uh, thank you for inviting me into for this podcast and also a uh, pleasure to be on this panel with Professor Anuradha Chana. Um, let me just uh, start by making a few remarks, which is um, a term that has been popularized maybe during this time is vaccine nationalism. So it's uh, used to describe uh, a situation in a country where situation whereby a country hoards vaccine, uh, vaccines for a deadly disease for their own citizens as opposed to uh, other countries that are suffering from the same disease. And this term didn't really just start with uh, COVID-19. Maybe uh, back in 2009, when we were uh, faced with the spread of the H1N1 flu pandemic, uh, Australia was one of the first countries to develop a vaccine. And at the same time, 
they blocked exports and countries like the USA were able to enter into these pre-purchase agreements with pharmaceutical companies that developed these vaccines. So in the wake of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, what we saw, uh, I think around August 2020, was uh, USA, UK, and the European Union uh, spending billions to basically uh, get these private vaccine developers like Pfizer, uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Oxford, uh, AstraZeneca. Uh, and, and these deals were made even before the final stage of human trials or even regulatory requirements were even completed. So uh, obviously the biggest difference from the previous uh, pandemic, uh, uh, or rather I should say epidemic, was that um, the COVID-19 crisis uh, has a much higher mortality rate, which means that this uh, sort of a situation of vaccine nationalism uh, resulted in, um, by the last estimate, I think over 6 million people have died globally. And in India alone, as per official figures, uh, we've seen the death of over 500,000 people. So uh, it's uh, even from a very dire situation, it's pretty clear that uh, vaccine nationalism is definitely harmful for uh, uh, any kind of any, if you want to make any kind of progress towards uh, getting rid of this disease, vaccine nationalism is definitely something that's very harmful. Uh, and maybe uh, now I can uh, hand it over to Professor Chenoy. Okay, thank you um, to the students of Jindal uh, University and Rohit for uh, initiating this. Uh, I have uh, a couple of very quick points. One about uh, vaccine nationalism. Uh, I think it has, and I'm focusing just on COVID. Uh, I think uh, Rohit has given a background uh, to uh, the earlier uh, uh, epidemics. One is that there were all kinds of vaccine nationalism. The first that you saw was how China was blamed for uh, COVID. You know, it was called the Chinese vaccine. Uh, it was called the Chinese virus, even by President Trump. Continuously on uh, popular uh, television and when he was addressing people, he kept saying, "It's this is this Chinese virus. It's their fault." And we are suffering. And uh, there were there were these, uh, you know, even scientists saying that it could have been produced in a Chinese lab without any evidence, really. Second, China themselves had an issue about, you know, hiding uh, how many people uh, were suffering it. Uh, so there were, uh, before even the vaccine, there was nationalism about the origins of uh, the virus. And uh, that aids to the whole atmosphere of uh, competitive uh, nationalism uh, in, in terms of, of, a of a health crisis. Uh, second, in the development of the vaccine, the competition, the pricing, all of it had elements of nationalism. There was not, no collaboration, uh, no internationalist perspective, no global perspective that uh, you know, a, a something like a virus cannot be restricted by state boundaries, by national boundaries. It's bound to travel. And more so when everyone is advocating and practicing the policies of globalism, globalization. Then the myths around it from various countries, including in the global south, 
you know, bang your thalis. And then in Africa, there were these local medicines. A lot of people were, uh, so the global South also had, a, you know, was also obviously embedded in this kind of uh, uh, myth-making. The worst thing about it was really uh, when the vaccine was developed and uh, when India and South Africa submitted an, uh, a kind of a plea to the WTO to make an exception from patents on that. And to date, WTO kept debating and many times over, the developed countries, all the Western countries, opposed this exception for this terrible pandemic. The virus, uh, uh, you know, they, they were all suffering from it collectively, but still they did not want to give a concession that the patents be removed and that this be available to the entire world, especially to the countries of the, of the South. So really, from the before the beginning to the you know uh, and to towards the, the vaccine, there was a kind of a competitive nationalism, a xenophobic nationalism, I would call it. And the biggest sufferers were uh, the developing countries and the global south. And you can see it, you know, in the developed countries, people have had four shots, even five, maybe we don't know, but. In much of Africa, many of ASEAN countries, they have, haven't even been able to have one. So this uh, very xenophobic nationalism continues and there's a huge amount of health inequality as a consequence, uh, even within states. So if you have, for example, uh, a, a person living in, let's say, a, a colony like uh, Panchil and very nearby, just 10 kilometers away, a person living in Sangam Vihar, the uh, life um, uh, expectancy is of 10 years. So leave alone between the West and the South. So in every which way, really, one needs to contest this kind of uh, not only nationalism, but inequality uh, and a uh, whole aspect, uh, all these various aspects uh, around it. Uh, so um, there was, of course, also vaccine diplomacy, uh, and that is uh, where uh, even China, India, etc. use it. But I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to either China or India exporting uh, vaccines uh, to other countries of the global south which needed it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Chinoy. Uh, I believe that uh, Professor Jyotish, any further remarks? No, uh, I mean, uh, what I would say is uh, I broadly agree with pro what Professor uh, Andrata Chinoy is saying um, is that um, there were quite a few issues. Maybe I can add to it, possibly, uh, to what Professor said, which is that uh, to bring in the question of uh, COVAX. So uh, COVAX was one of the first initiatives whereby uh, the WHO and uh, some other entities like the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations and Gavi aimed to procure at least, uh, I think around 2 billion doses of COVID-19 uh, vaccines by the end of 2021. So there were initiatives so that there is uh, 
at least some effort globally to address uh, or to counter this sort of vaccine nationalism and uh, this sort of initiative uh, that was uh, raised by these organizations was based on the experience of the previous h1n1 uh, uh, epidemic and i think some of the challenges of uh, these sort of initiatives are also worth getting into because uh, if you look at what an organization like gavi does which is the uh, general vaccine <clears throat> which is the global vaccine uh, initiative and and uh, global access to vaccine initiative and what do they start with basically no money and they uh, don't really have any kind of bandwidth as well and if you look at some of the more practical aspects of doing this which is that uh, they started looking at the different kinds of vaccines that were available so you start with something like mrna vaccines so mrna vaccines are basically those vaccines which were produced by pfizer and moderna and then you have another set of vaccines which was produced by uh, astrazeneca and and what they saw when they looked at this was that the astrazeneca vaccines were easier to procure so astrazeneca is basically uh, in india it was marketed as uh, covishield um and if you look at what pfizer and moderna did is that they produced these mrna vaccines initially and they had already made commitments to send uh, millions of doses of these vaccines to rich countries so there was sort of a legal uh, uh, impediment for uh, developing countries to even try to get access uh, in in this case uh, and as uh, i think uh, aryan mentioned in the initial comments that uh, some of the storage requirements of these vaccines were uh, not ideal for developing countries if you think of how you can keep some of these vaccines at minus 60 degrees or minus 20 degrees it's quite challenging and uh, that's basically how gavi and covax started pushing a portfolio of vaccines and that itself had very different timelines of production and it was basically after that that they maybe uh, decided that to be practical they have to maybe pursue astrazeneca uh, and and then the next challenge comes that astrazeneca itself is a company which is very new to vaccine production so then you have to think about the idea that there are very few companies in the world that even have the capacity to produce at such a scale and then distribute it as well so this is how Uh, gavi ended up facilitating that outsourcing to the serum institute of india in pune now the serum institute of india in pune uh, basically has a capacity of i think around 250 million uh, production per month and uh, that's how they were able to even supply 1 billion doses uh, so even from the perspective of preparedness the very practical aspect of preparedness uh, one before something like this hits after and and after something like this hits even to uh, engage uh, tactically to deal with the crisis we just not equipped to do it and the debate ended up becoming that of state versus private entities uh, or um, this is like maybe the end of the state was what uh, one set of people tried to argue and another set of people tried to argue that it's uh, end of the private sector that maybe uh, this is at a time when the state should take the lead initiative to produce vaccines at scale so uh, but ultimately coming back to the covax question what we saw was that uh, an initiative whereby uh, that was led to 
procure medicines uh, or vaccines quite cheaply uh, they were uh, they faced a lot of issues basically because donor countries systematically broke the promises uh, over a period of time they delivered lower doses and that too uh, they rolled it out quite late so even outside of this perspective of the difference between developing countries and developed countries uh, the, uh, we saw the challenge of just making ends meet with the original uh, dose of vaccine rollouts in serum institute of india itself what they did was they stopped exports uh, at one point in time i think around april 2021 to address the needs of the indian citizens so and you can kind of see the logic of that too from the indian government whereby uh, you are seeing a significant mortality rate within um, among indian citizens and at the same time you are seeing a high mortality rate abroad as well uh, if you look look at it very cynically there is a high incentive for the indian government to actually protect it for their own citizens and maybe in a sh- from a very short term perspective it might be impossible for them to see any wider than that so uh, these were some of the uh, i felt more practical challenges to uh, an initiative like covax which sought to address uh, the covid-19 pandemic vaccine inequity yeah indeed professor i i believe that the point of as you said that you know since developed countries had already pre-purchased such large doses of vaccines it was it's uh, like in my mind i can just imagine a closed cycle a cycle that developing countries that could not access you know it was straight from yeah, let's say pfizer to us us to pfizer and nobody could break through the cycle to you know procure vaccines for their own citizens and yes uh, i i believe that also brings up the very good point about the indigenous manufacturing of vaccines which i believe india had an upper hand and we were lucky that you know we have facilities uh in the country that uh, that have some sort of production capabilities and as far as serum institute is concerned quite large production capabilities uh i believe the discussion would be better facilitated with a question of some sort so grishma and archita please uh, feel free to ask a question good morning professors uh the question that i would like to ask is that other than the poverty in the global south and uh, absence of production do you also think the internal uh, fractions in the country based on religion or caste or ethnicity which is a prominent problem in the global south countries do you think even that hampers uh, the vaccine production and to what extent does it hamper i think it doesn't hamper in, in terms of vaccine production because that is done by the uh you know by the capitalist class by by the industrialists and they get the licenses and uh, the advantage that india has which uh, at least is a fact that they've been producing and exporting to uh, pharmaceuticals even to the african countries even you know companies like ranbaxy etc but as far as distribution is concerned yes divisions do impact uh, all this uh, there are many countries in the global south with conflicts identity conflicts internal wars and they are the ones which have suffered greatly because of even further vaccine inequality so there is a you know like a several layers of inequality first between the developed and the de- 
developing between developed and the less developed, the least developed, and within the least developed countries, which are conflict prone, which have a, a deep sets of hierarchies and social traditions, whether it is caste or communities or tribes, some of which are dominant. So yes, all these things uh, do matter, and and yet sadly, lessons are not learned. Uh, despite all the deaths and ravages and miseries of the common people, uh, the elites uh, continue with these policies with further inequality. And health is a huge, huge issue. It in fact makes uh, it can impoverish even a one middle class family to have one major illness in that family. And you could see the amount of deaths and how many children were left without parents, and and that all increases uh, child inequality, gender inequality, and overall uh, uh, in inequality. Thanks. Yeah, uh, just to add to Professor Chenoy's points, uh, if you just look at the kind of crisis that was faced uh, in um, in India alone. Uh, Excess deaths is something a lot of people have been talking about, especially demographers, which is that um, stemming from the issue of uh, some of the mortality not even being recorded in different parts of the country uh, to the point where sometimes uh, people have said that it could even be maybe twice or thrice the kind of figures that have been floating around in the media. Um, and this has been reported purely from the initiatives of uh, uh, local journalists, say, in a, in a state like Gujarat, for instance. Uh, I think there's a Gujarati newspaper called Divya Bhaskar, which had uh, actually uh, done some excellent uh, reportage from various municipal corporations in Gujarat, which showed how much excess deaths were caused, uh, which were not even being counted as part of the registration process of deaths at the municipality level. And all of this is also sort of a symbol of uh, um, inequality that exists in society, that only one kind of mortality or, or damage gets recorded. And, and another aspect is uh, when, when it comes to the existing health inequalities that we have in the country, uh, the complete focus on COVID meant that a lot of the other diseases which we were uh, suffering from for a long time uh, they got less attention. So one such infectious disease, which causes a lot of mortality, which obviously does not get anywhere near the attention that COVID does right now, is tuberculosis. So tuberculosis causes a huge number of deaths in India every year. Uh, and over and above that, you also have certain other, the, the practical aspect of uh, um, hospitalization care, which happened during the second wave, uh, if you go to, say, the National Cancer Institute, which is in Chajar in Haryana, I only bring it up because it's in the state we are in right now. So those sort of institutes which exclusively cater to cancer patients uh, were replaced with COVID bed wards. Uh, so you have to imagine that when the focus goes into uh, a disease like COVID, other diseases which are uh, possibly affecting certain demographics a lot more like poor or the lower caste because of certain reasons, those also get ignored. So in an indirect way also, this is aggravating some of the existing inequalities that we have in society. And I think it's also worth noting that um, initially uh, when COVID hit, a lot of the reportage came from uh, 
urban communities or, or uh, urban areas. That's because urban areas are more densely populated in India. And for that reason, it's possible that uh, the spreading of COVID in urban areas were reported a lot more or it actually happened that it was spreading a lot more in urban areas. So in that sense, also, there was an inequality. Uh, so that there are so many different aspects to this. And uh, the reality of developing countries is that uh, we never had the COVID testing rate to even uh, keep uh, nowhere near keep up pace with the infection rates, which means that a lot of the inequalities that might have happened, we didn't even document it really well. So now uh, we have to resort to other speculative statistical techniques to uh, come up with some of the actual damage that this did. Uh, so from, and maybe to add one more point uh, is something uh, which we may have already forgotten, but at the time it was such a, a big crisis, which is what happened to migrant workers across the country. Uh, migrant workers who were stranded everywhere and they were policed and they were not allowed to go home uh, because they, uh, it, there was a huge fear that they will spread the disease. But they were confined to certain locations uh, across different parts of the country and, and they were also not given access to basic necessities like, like food or, or water because it was not available as everything was shut down due to the lockdown. So all of these have a repercussion over a period of time and uh, a lot of the recent research from economists have been uh, uh, attempts to sort of try to understand how much of the wages were lost by workers in different parts of the country because of such a lockdown and such harsh measures like the lockdown uh, as a response to uh, trying to limit the spread of COVID. So there were many such inequalities across the country uh, which was accentuated uh, because of the COVID uh, pandemic. Thank you, Professor. Uh, Archita, you had a question as well. Yeah, uh, good morning, Professor. So in the beginning, we were talking about vaccine nationalism. And, uh, another uh, theme that comes up is vaccine imperialism. We heard about UK not recognizing our vaccines, which were made by serum. Uh, despite being based on the same formula as AstraZeneca was, and yet they didn't recognize Indian vaccines. And parallelly, uh, we do hear, we did hear reports of Canada stocking vaccines more than that was required. We also heard of Global South and developing countries getting vaccines which were nearly expiring. So, um, uh, what what would your comments be on this new take on, on this? Uh, new aspect of vaccine imperialism, which we saw uh, within uh, 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 between the developed countries like Canada, US, UK versus the uh, Global South? Look, uh, when there is imperialism, you know, and uh, racism, that, that manifests itself in, in everything. It's structural. It's systemic. Uh, so uh, it would, of course, come into something like this. It would come into, it is part of health inequality. It is part of, uh, uh, it is, this, uh, you know, some countries not only wanting to hold on to things like vaccine, but moving ahead and taking advantage of the situation of profits, of uh, projecting their power, projecting their more advanced civilization. So it comes, it, it isn't always just propaganda, but it's structural. It comes in terms of policy and it, it converts into 
the the almost static kind of uh, development and yet this kind of development is promoted by the big multilateral institutions that are the world bank or wto uh, they would give some you know small anti poverty alleviation measures but on the big issues uh, these structural inequalities in health education even in in, in culture in every aspect uh, you would see continue and and that is why in the human development indexes you see that uh, uh, you know how the the um uh, lineup has remained the same the the 10 you know most developed countries have remained the most developed uh, the past uh, so many years the exception maybe is china um and india for a while it was an emerging kind of country and its economy expanded but in terms of health and inequalities it remains at the lowest as do all the uh, lesser developed countries in fact the gap between them increases so yes i agree there is this vaccine imperialism but it is overall an aspect of imperialism at large which is systemic uh, globally thank you yeah uh, vaccine imperialism certainly uh, is a uh, something that popped up quite a bit uh, in in the last couple of years uh, but maybe as a consequence of me being a, a, a political economist more than an area study scholar i i was uh, probably my attention went a lot more towards uh, how pharmaceutical companies were uh, and uh, intellectual property rights those debates were uh, looked more interesting to me so i apologize if i am not answering your question directly but uh, some some of the basic aspects of a crisis uh, or a basic response to a crisis like this is that if you want to scale up production uh, you need to uh, the most reasonable way to do it is to come to an agreement to waive intellectual property rights so that every country can produce this in a generic format for their own citizens so that Uh, that there is a wider distribution network or at least within a, each country there is some sort of capacity to deal with this and uh, that can only happen if you wave off intellectual property right protection and obviously it's something that the pharmaceutical industry does not support uh, and and they have good reasons to do it because they say that it is uh, a lot of uh, uh, money that goes into producing these vaccines and Uh, possibly some of the pharmaceutical lobbies have uh, are quite strong in some of the countries that are possibly uh, promoting this form of uh, vaccine imperialism but that's uh, at this stage i can only speculate but it's it's sort of a recurring theme in a lot of issues that have happened in the world in previous decades so i i think something we can pay attention to is that there was a sort of exclusivity in how certain companies were chosen to be the sellers of these vaccines and and that resulted in uh, the product pricing the product being the vaccine being dictated by these companies so uh, if you think about what happened in india the indian government did push for uh, free supply of vaccines for maybe the first 300 million people who were most vulnerable Uh, however since then the the central government has sort of passed on that responsibility of procurement to state governments and then uh, the regulatory pressure uh, which capped the pricing of vaccines like covishield and covaxin uh, so that uh, it it's sort of more accessible for the rest of the population 
but the only way we can ensure that there is some form of vaccine equity across countries is that there is an ipr waiver like professor chanoy mentioned there was a proposal by india and south africa and it was backed by over 100 countries but it's still finding it people are still finding it difficult to push through that agreement uh, and and uh, only if you do that can you actually push the expansion of vaccine coverage to uh, the rest of asia uh to most of africa and to latin american countries that still have less than half of the population vaccinated yeah thank you professor uh professor jyotish and chinoy very insightful discussions i would say uh, i believe we could take a final question from akilesh and then we could end the discussion as per time constraints Oh, well good morning professors uh, thank you for that very riveting talk it was great hearing uh, insights from you uh, so i had questions on uh, what rohit jyotish professor rohit jyotish had to say along the lines of uh, the geopolitics of vaccine uh, so professor rohit you just spoke about uh, vaccine equity and do you think a lot of the geopolitics of vaccine distribution started to come into play because we have seen uh, countries like india not accepting uh, chinese made vaccines and the same has gone with us as well and they cite many of the border disputes that are going on and uh, the many of the political tensions that exist with china and uh, this is the same with other countries as well uh, so do you think they should come in the way of uh, vaccine uh, vaccine distribution that is uh, national security concerns coming in the way of vaccine distribution or do you think there is a way to mitigate these concerns well there is certainly uh those kind of concerns that arose uh, at, at different points in time uh, but it's kind of interesting also maybe if you just look at some of the data about how vaccine distribution has happened uh, earlier we were talking about the covax agreement and how it was set up to ensure that there is vaccine equity so uh, now even within covax you have many different ways of supplying the vaccines right you can either do it through donations or you can have some kind of a contracted supply on the other hand you can also have uh, supply via bilateral deals you can also have uh, direct donations and if you look at the data on all of this and i think the wto and the imf have a very good database where they accumulate this uh, uh, some statistics on this and what it says is that almost 70% of the vaccine exports have been through bilateral agreements that's about 3.5 billion doses and there were some via direct donations as well that's around 6.5% of the total share of vaccine uh, but if you look at covax as a supply arrangement what it tells you is that uh, the total uh, share that has happened through that covax is around 22 to 23% so uh when we talk about geopolitical tensions that certainly exists uh but at the same time there have been some countries who are clearly the leaders in vaccine production and distribution uh, we we also have some data on that if you look at the leading countries uh for instance there was some talk last year about india versus china when it comes to producing vaccines and also exporting it but if you look at the actual data on uh exports as a share of world exports uh, it's pretty conclusive that european union support uh, supplied most of the total number 
uh, of doses across the world around 39% china comes in uh, a pretty close second at 33 or 34% of the world exports india on the other hand is only like 2.4% uh, so vaccine diplomacy uh, while there's uh, nothing wrong with that if you see uh, what has happened globally is that multilateral agreements are increasingly hard to come by and the way uh, these crises as and when it happened it was mitigated was through these bilateral agreements and and most of the bilateral agreements had definitely like as akilesh has pointed out uh, uh, has some geopolitical colors if you see what happened maybe in south asia so pakistan sri lanka and bangladesh were some of the largest recipients of china's vaccine exports uh and china had stepped in at a time when india had briefly halted exporting vaccines around april 2021 but india resumed exports after maybe around 6 months when the number of covid cases here started coming down and it coincided with the criticism of uh the efficacy of chinese vaccines which a lot of uh, people were making in the world at time at that time and uh since then many of these south asian countries shifted their attention towards depending on european union and the usa so now essentially the top 3 vaccine providers in the world are the eu uh, obviously eu the data is reported as eu that's why i'm saying eu uh, eu china and the usa so definitely there are geopolitical colors to vaccine distribution and equity and and uh, a, a large region like africa an entire continent is being left behind because of this uh, which is why i brought up the earlier point of uh, um, maybe focusing more on intellectual property rights because uh, the only way africa can uh, address its concerns is if Cunt, uh, firms and countries within africa have their own capacity to produce this as as a generic vaccine rather than depending on these large companies in the rich world to supply it to them yeah so i agree with i agree with rohit i i think that we have a commonality of opinion on this so thanks very much uh thank you professor chana thank you professor jyotish i think we will end this podcast now uh it has been a pleasure listening to both of you uh indeed on such topics as is vaccine nationalism vaccine diplomacy and uh, also i am going to come back to the same analogy of as a closed cycle between the corporates and state actors um i believe that uh, in conclusion i can say that yes we we saw uh you know what i would say the uh in my personal opinion is the height of corporate participation in this pandemic uh states themselves largely you know were inadequate or were slightly on the back foot when it came to uh, public welfare or public welfare with respect to vaccines uh but private players definitely stepped up such as pfizer astrazeneca oxford johnson johnson and uh, in india like we had bharat biotech as well uh obviously the positives and negatives of it i believe would be a completely different podcast episode uh because as we all know you know corporates work for profit but uh, yes they can always be a limit to their profits uh once again thank you so much professor jyotish and professor chinai it has been a pleasure and uh, i thank my fellow research interns as well for uh, putting up such lively questions uh thank you all see you again i will be ending the recording
Uh, a very good morning to everyone present here, especially to our guest speakers, Professor Jyotish and Professor Chinoy. Uh, this is the fourth and final episode of the Jinder Center for Global South podcast series. Uh, today's topic is a really interesting topic personally for me, and hopefully through this discussion as well, we will know. It is about the vaccine inequality in the uh, post-pandemic world and even as we see now during the pandemic world. Uh, a brief introduction to our guest speakers. Uh, Professor Jyotish is a political economist and he holds a PhD in economics from the Jawaharlal Nehru University. Uh, he has also done work for uh, work studying contemporary capitalism and especially in the context of the global south. Uh, Professor Chinoy has also done her PhD from the Jawaharlal Nehru University and holds a master MPhil from the University of Columbia. She is the former Dean of the School of International Studies at JNU as well. Uh, thank you, Professor Chinoy. Thank you, Professor Jyotish. It is an honor to be able to host this session with you. Uh, I would just like to give a very brief introduction to uh, vaccine inequality as we see it today. Uh, I believe it's, it's very easy to say for us that the, the, the glaring inequalities in vaccine distribution that we see today were accentuated during the global pandemic. Uh, in March 2020, the world went into a lockdown, uh, international flights were suspended, and we were locked into our homes for isolation, quarantining, and so on. Uh, luckily, and it is it is considered to be a scientific breakthrough that we had vaccines so early on, I believe, and uh, the first vaccines came as, far, as early as nine months into the pandemic. Um, but the large problem that we did see was the distribution of these vaccines. Uh, primarily because we do not have the technology to transport some vaccines at very low temperatures across the globe, but also because uh, developed and uh, richer economies started hoarding vaccines for the future, sometimes even having vaccines four times the population of their countries. Uh, this issue was uh, further accentuated during the second wave, uh, as we say, of the pandemic, which was, uh, which was mostly caused by the Delta variant of COVID-19. Uh, during this time, the WHO, uh, global organizations, and, and developing also countries. asked for uh, vaccine inequality throughout the globe. Uh, today's discussion will primarily be on the topics of vaccine inequality, but also about how it affects the global south. The global south is a developing region, a region that has a young population, a working population, and a population that definitely needs to be vaccinated against any such virus that causes disruptions in the economy and so on. And uh, so ending with my introduction, I would request Professor Jyotish to please start. Hi, uh, this is uh, Rohit and I, uh, thank you for inviting me into for this podcast and also a uh, pleasure to be on this panel with Professor Anuradha Chana. Um, let me just uh, start by making a few remarks, which is um, a term that has been popularized maybe during this time is vaccine nationalism. So it's uh, used to describe uh, a situation in a country where situation whereby a country hoards vaccine, uh, vaccines for a deadly disease for their own citizens as opposed to uh, other countries that are suffering from the same disease. And this term didn't really just start with uh, COVID-19. Maybe uh, back in 2009, when we were uh, faced with the spread of the H1N1 flu pandemic, uh, Australia was one of the first countries to develop a vaccine. And at the same time, 
they blocked exports and countries like the USA were able to enter into these pre-purchase agreements with pharmaceutical companies that developed these vaccines. So in the wake of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, what we saw, uh, I think around August 2020, was uh, USA, UK, and the European Union uh, spending billions to basically uh, get these private vaccine developers like Pfizer, uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Oxford, uh, AstraZeneca. Uh, and, and these deals were made even before the final stage of human trials or even regulatory requirements were even completed. So uh, obviously, the biggest difference from the previous uh, pandemic, uh, uh, or rather I should say epidemic, was that um, the COVID-19 crisis uh, has a much higher mortality rate, which means that this uh, sort of a situation of vaccine nationalism uh, resulted in, um, by the last estimate, I think over 6 million people have died globally. And in India alone, as per official figures, uh, we've seen the death of over 500,000 people. So uh, it's uh, even from a very dire situation, it's pretty clear that uh, vaccine nationalism is definitely harmful for uh, uh, any kind of any, if we want to make any kind of progress towards uh, getting rid of this disease, vaccine nationalism is definitely something that's very harmful. Uh, and maybe uh, now I can uh, hand it over to Professor Chenoy. Okay, thank you um, to the students of Jindal uh... University and Rohit for uh, initiating this. Uh, I have uh, a couple of very quick points. One about uh, vaccine nationalism. Uh, I think it has, and I'm focusing just on COVID. Uh, I think Rohit has given a background uh, to uh, the earlier uh, uh, epidemics. One is that there were all kinds of vaccine nationalism. The first that you saw was how China was blamed for uh, COVID. You know, it was called the Chinese vaccine. Uh, it was called the Chinese virus, even by President Trump. Continuously on uh, popular t- uh, television and when he was addressing people, he kept saying, "It's this is this Chinese virus. It's their fault. And we are suffering. And uh, there, were, there were these, uh, you know, even scientists saying that it could have been produced in a Chinese lab without any evidence, really. Second, China themselves had an issue about, you know, hiding uh, how many people uh, were suffering it. Uh, so there were, uh, before even the vaccine, there was nationalism about the origins of uh, the virus. And uh, that aids to the whole atmosphere of uh, competitive uh, nationalism uh, in in terms of of a he- of a health crisis. Uh, second, in the development of the vaccine, the competition, the pricing, all of it had elements of nationalism. There was not no collaboration, uh, no internationalist perspective, no global perspective that. Uh, you know, a, a vi- something like a virus cannot be restricted by state boundaries, by national boundaries. It's bound to travel and more so when everyone is advocating and practicing the policies of globalism, globalization. Then the myths around it from various countries, including in the global south, 
you know, bang your thalis. And then in Africa, there were these local medicines. A lot of people were. Uh, so the Global South also had, a, you know, was also obviously embedded in this kind of uh, uh, myth making. The worst thing about it was really uh, when the vaccine was developed and uh, when India and South Africa submitted an, uh, a kind of a plea to the WTO to make an exception from patents on that. And to date, WTO kept debating and many times over the developed countries, all the Western countries opposed this exception for this terrible pandemic, the virus, uh, uh, you know, they, they were all suffering from it collectively, but still they did not want to give a concession that the patents be removed and that this be available to the entire world, especially to the countries of the, of the South. So really from the, before the beginning to the, you know, uh, and to, towards the vaccine, there was a kind of a competitive nationalism, a xenophobic nationalism, I would call it. And the biggest sufferers were uh, the developing countries and the global south. And you can see it, you know, in the developed countries, people have had four shots, even five, maybe. We don't know. But in much of Africa, many of ASEAN countries, they haven't even been able to have one. So this... uh, very xenophobic nationalism continues and there's a huge amount of health inequality as a consequence, uh, even within states. So if you have, for example, uh, a, a person living in, let's say, a, a colony like uh, Panchil and very nearby, just 10 kilometers away, a person living in Sangam Vihar, the uh, life um, uh, expectancy is of 10 years. So leave alone between the West and the South. So in every which way, really, one needs to contest this kind of uh, not only nationalism, but inequality uh, and uh, whole aspect, uh, all these various aspects uh, around it. Uh, So um, there was, of course, also vaccine diplomacy. uh, And that is uh, where... um, even China, India, etc. use it. But I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to either China or India exporting uh, vaccines uh, to other countries of the global south which needed it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Chinoy. I believe that, uh, Professor Jyotish, any further remarks? No, uh, I mean, uh, what I would say is uh, I broadly agree with pr- what Professor uh, Andrata Chana is saying um, is that um, there were quite a few issues. Maybe I can add to it possibly uh, to what Professor said, which is that uh, to bring in the question of uh, COVAX. So uh, COVAX was one of the first initi- initiatives whereby uh, the WHO and some other entities like the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations and Gavi aim to procure at least, uh, I think, around 2 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines by the end of 2021. So there were initiatives so that there is uh, 
at least some effort globally to address uh, or to counter this sort of vaccine nationalism and uh, this sort of initiative uh, that was uh, raised by these organizations was based on the experience of the previous h1n1 uh, uh, epidemic and i think some of the challenges of uh, these sort of initiatives are also worth getting into because uh, if you look at what an organization like gavi does which is the uh, general vaccine <clears throat> which is the global vaccine uh, initiative and and uh, global access to vaccine initiative and what do they start with basically no money and they uh, don't really have any kind of bandwidth as well and if you look at some of the more practical aspects of doing this which is that uh, they started looking at the different kinds of vaccines that were available so you start with something like mrna vaccines so mrna vaccines are basically those vaccines which were produced by pfizer and moderna and then you have another set of vaccines which was produced by uh, astrazeneca and and what they saw when they looked at this was that the astrazeneca vaccines were easier to procure so astrazeneca is basically uh, in india it was marketed as uh, covishield um, and if you look at what pfizer and moderna did is that they produced these mrna vaccines initially and they had already made commitments to send uh, millions of doses of these vaccines to rich countries so there was sort of a legal uh, uh, impediment for uh, developing countries to even try to get access uh, in in this case uh, and as uh, i think uh, aryan mentioned in the initial comments that uh, some of the storage requirements of these vaccines were uh, not ideal for developing countries if you think of how you can keep some of these vaccines at minus 60 degrees or minus 20 degrees it's quite challenging and uh, that's basically how gavi and covax started pushing a portfolio of vaccines and that itself had very different timelines of production and it was basically after that that they maybe uh, decided that to be practical they have to maybe pursue astrazeneca uh, and and then the next challenge comes that astrazeneca itself is a company which is very new to vaccine production so then you have to think about the idea that there are very few companies in the world that even have the capacity to produce at such a scale and then distribute it as well so this is how uh, gavi ended up facilitating that outsourcing to the serum institute of india in pune now the serum institute of india in pune uh, basically has a capacity of i think around 250 million uh, production per month and uh, that's how they were able to even supply 1 billion doses uh so even from the perspective of preparedness the very practical aspect of preparedness uh one before something like this hits after and and after something like this hits even to uh, engage uh tactically to deal with the crisis we just not equipped to do it and the debate ended up becoming that of state versus private entities uh or um, this is like maybe the end of the state was what uh, one set of people try to argue and another set of people try to argue that it's uh, end of the private sector that maybe uh, this is at a time when the state should take the lead initiative to produce vaccines at scale so uh, but ultimately coming back to the covax question what we saw was that uh, an initiative whereby uh, that was led to 
procure medicines uh, or vaccines quite cheaply uh, they were uh, they faced a lot of issues basically because donor countries systematically broke the promises uh, over a period of time they delivered lower doses and that too uh, they rolled it out quite late so even outside of this perspective of the difference between developing countries and developed countries uh, the, uh, we saw the challenge of just making ends meet with the original uh, dose of vaccine rollouts in serum institute of india itself what they did was they stopped exports uh, at one point in time i think around april 2021 to address the needs of the indian citizens so and you can kind of see the logic of that too from the indian government whereby uh, you are seeing a significant mortality rate within um, among indian citizens and at the same time you are seeing a high mortality rate abroad as well uh, if you look look at it very cynically there is a high incentive for the indian government to actually protect it for their own citizens and maybe in a sh- from a very short term perspective it might be impossible for them to see any wider than that so uh, these were some of the uh, i felt more practical challenges to uh, an initiative like covax which sought to address uh, the covid-19 pandemic vaccine inequity yeah indeed professor i i believe that the point of as you said that you know since developed countries had already pre-purchased such large doses of vaccines it was it's uh, like in my mind i can just imagine a closed cycle a cycle that developing countries that could not access you know it was straight from you know, let's say pfizer to us us to pfizer and nobody could break through the cycle to you know procure vaccines for their own citizens and yes uh, i i believe that also brings up the very good point about the indigenous manufacturing of vaccines which i believe india had an upper hand and we were lucky that you know we have facilities uh in the country that uh, that have some sort of production capabilities and as far as serum institute is concerned quite large production capabilities uh i believe the discussion would be better facilitated with a question of some sort so grishma and archita please uh, feel free to ask a question good morning professors uh the question that i would like to ask is that other than the poverty in the global south and uh, absence of production do you also think the internal uh, fractions in the country based on religion or caste or ethnicity which is a prominent problem in the global south countries do you think even that hampers uh, the vaccine production and to what extent does it hamper i think it doesn't hamper in, in terms of vaccine production because that is done by the uh you know by the capitalist class by by the industrialists and they get the licenses and uh, the advantage that india has which uh, at least is a fact that they've been producing and exporting to uh, pharmaceuticals even to the african countries even you know companies like ranbaxy etc but as far as distribution is concerned yes divisions do impact uh, all this uh, there are many countries in the global south with conflicts identity conflicts internal wars and they are the ones which have suffered greatly because of even further vaccine inequality so there is a you know like a several layers of inequality first between the developed and the de- 
developing between developed and the less developed, the least developed, and within the least developed countries, which are conflict prone, which have a, a deep sets of hierarchies and social traditions, whether it is caste or communities or tribes, some of which are dominant. So yes, all these things uh, do matter, and and yet, sadly, lessons are not learned. Uh, despite all the deaths and ravages and miseries of the common people, uh, the elites uh, continue with these policies with further inequality. And health is a huge, huge issue. It in fact makes um, it can impoverish even a one middle class family to have one major illness in, in that family. And you could see the amount of deaths and how many children were left without parents, and and that all increases. Uh, child inequality, gender inequality, and overall uh, uh, in inequality. Thanks. Yeah, uh, just to add to Professor Chinoy's points, uh, if you just look at the kind of crisis that was faced uh, in um, in India alone, uh, excess deaths is something a lot of people have been talking about, especially demographers, which is that. Um, Stemming from the issue of uh, some of the mortality not even being recorded in different parts of the country, uh, to the point where sometimes uh, people have said that it could even be maybe twice or thrice the kind of figures that have been floating around in the media. Um, and this has been reported purely from the initiatives of uh, uh, local journalists, say in a, in a state like Gujarat, for instance. Uh, I think there's a Gujarati newspaper called Divya Bhaskar, which had uh, actually uh, done some excellent uh, reportage from various municipal corporations in Gujarat, which showed how much excess deaths were caused, uh, which were not even being counted as part of the registration process of deaths at the municipality level. And all of this is also sort of a symbol of uh, um, inequality that exists in society, that only one kind of mortality or or damage gets recorded and and another aspect is uh, when when it comes to the existing health inequalities that we have in the country uh, the complete focus on covid meant that a lot of the other diseases which we were uh, suffering from for a long time uh, they got less attention so one such infectious disease which causes a lot of mortality which obviously does not get anywhere near the attention that covid does right now is tuberculosis. So tuberculosis causes a huge number of deaths in India every year. Uh, and over and above that, you also have certain other, the, the practical aspect of uh, um, hospitalization care, which happened during the second wave. Uh, if you go to, say, the National Cancer Institute, which is in Chajar in Haryana, I only bring it up because it's in the state we are in right now. So those sort of institutes which exclusively cater to cancer patients uh, were replaced with COVID bed wards. Uh, so you have to imagine that when the focus goes into uh, a disease like COVID, other diseases which are uh, possibly affecting certain demographics a lot more like poor or the lower caste because of certain reasons, those also get ignored. So in an indirect way also, this is aggravating some of the existing inequalities that we have in society. And I think it's also worth noting that um, initially uh, when COVID hit, a lot of the reportage came from uh, 
urban communities or, or uh, urban areas. That's because urban areas are more densely populated in India. And for that reason, it's possible that uh, the spreading of COVID in urban areas were reported a lot more or it actually happened that it was spreading a lot more in urban areas. So in that sense, also, there was an inequality. Uh, so that there are so many different aspects to this. And uh, the reality of developing countries is that uh, we never had the COVID testing rate to even uh, keep uh, nowhere near keep up pace with the infection rates, which means that a lot of the inequalities that might have happened, we didn't even document it really well. So now uh, we have to resort to other speculative statistical techniques to uh, come up with some of the actual damage that this did. Uh, so from, and maybe to add one more point uh, is something uh, which we may have already forgotten, but at the time it was such a, a big crisis, which is what happened to migrant workers across the country. Uh, migrant workers who were stranded everywhere and they were policed and they were not allowed to go home uh, because they, uh, it, there was a huge fear that they will spread the disease. But they were confined to certain locations uh, across different parts of the country and, and they were also not given access to basic necessities like, like food or, or water because it was not available as everything was shut down due to the lockdown. So all of these have a repercussion over a period of time and uh, a lot of the recent research from economists have been uh, uh, attempts to sort of try to understand how much of the wages were lost by workers in different parts of the country because of such a lockdown and such harsh measures like the lockdown uh, as a response to uh, trying to limit the spread of COVID. So there were many such inequalities across the country where, which was accentuated uh, because of the COVID uh, pandemic. Thank you, Professor. Uh, Archita, you had a question as well. Yeah, uh, good morning, Professor. So in the beginning, we were talking about vaccine nationalism. An, uh, another uh, theme that comes up is vaccine imperialism. We heard about UK not recognizing our vaccines, which are made by serum. Uh, despite being based on the same formula as AstraZeneca was, and yet they didn't recognize Indian vaccines. And parallelly, uh, we do hear, we did hear reports of Canada stocking vaccines more than that was required. We also heard of Global South and developing countries getting vaccines which were nearly expiring. So, um, uh, what what would your comments be on this new take on, on this? Uh, new aspect of vaccine imperialism, which we saw uh, within uh, uh, between the developed countries like Canada, US, UK versus the uh, Global South? Look, uh, when there is imperialism, you know, and uh, racism, that, that manifests itself in, in everything. It's structural. It's systemic. Uh, so uh, it would of course, come into something like this. It would come into, it is part of health inequality. It is part of, uh, uh, it is, this, uh, you know, some countries not only wanting to hold on to things like vaccine, but moving ahead and taking advantage of the situation of profits, of uh, projecting their power, projecting their more advanced civilization. So it comes, it, it isn't always just propaganda, but it's structural. It comes in terms of policy and it, it converts into 
the the almost static kind of uh, development and yet this kind of development is promoted by the big multilateral institutions that are the world bank or wto uh, they would give some you know small anti poverty alleviation measures but on the big issues uh, these structural inequalities in health education even in in, in culture in every aspect uh, you would see continue and and that is why in the human development indexes you see that uh, uh, you know how the the um uh, lineup has remained the same the the 10 you know most developed countries have remained the most developed uh, the past uh, so many years the exception maybe is china um and india for a while it was an emerging kind of country and its economy expanded but in terms of health and inequalities it remains at the lowest as do all the uh, lesser developed countries in fact the gap between them increases so yes i agree there is this vaccine imperialism but it is overall an aspect of imperialism at large which is systemic uh, globally thank you yeah uh, vaccine imperialism certainly uh, is a uh, something that popped up quite a bit uh, in in the last couple of years uh, but maybe as a consequence of me being a, a, a political economist more than an area study scholar i i was uh, probably my attention went a lot more towards uh, how pharmaceutical companies were uh, and uh, intellectual property rights those debates were uh, looked more interesting to me so i apologize if i am not answering your question directly but uh, some some of the basic aspects of a crisis uh, or a basic response to a crisis like this is that if you want to scale up production uh, you need to uh, the most reasonable way to do it is to come to an agreement to waive intellectual property rights so that every country can produce this in a generic format for their own citizens so that Uh, that there is a wider distribution network or at least within a, each country there is some sort of capacity to deal with this and uh that can only happen if you wave off intellectual property right protection and obviously it's something that the pharmaceutical industry does not support uh, and and they have good reasons to do it because they say that it is uh, a lot of uh, uh money that goes into producing these vaccines and Uh, possibly some of the pharmaceutical lobbies have uh, are quite strong in some of the countries that are possibly uh, promoting this form of uh, vaccine imperialism but that's um, at this stage i can only speculate but it's it's sort of a recurring theme in a lot of issues that have happened in the world in previous decades so i i think something we can pay attention to is that there was a sort of exclusivity in how certain companies were chosen to be the sellers of these vaccines and and that resulted in uh, the product pricing the product being the vaccine being dictated by these companies so uh, if you think about what happened in india the indian government did push for uh, free supply of vaccines for maybe the first 300 million people who were most vulnerable Uh, however since then the the central government has sort of passed on that responsibility of procurement to state governments and then uh, the regulatory pressure uh, which capped the pricing of vaccines like covishield and covaxin uh, so that uh, it it's sort of more accessible for the rest of the population 
but the only way we can ensure that there is some form of vaccine equity across countries is that there is an ipr waiver like professor chanoy mentioned there was a proposal by india and south africa and it was backed by over 100 countries but it's still finding it people are still finding it difficult to push through that agreement uh, and and uh, only if you do that can you actually push the expansion of vaccine coverage to uh, the rest of asia uh to most of africa and to latin american countries that still have less than half of the population vaccinated yeah thank you professor uh professor jyotish and chinoy very insightful discussions i would say uh, i believe we could take a final question from akilesh and then we could end the discussion as per time constraints Uh, well good morning professors uh, thank you for that very riveting talk it was great hearing uh, insights from you uh, so i had questions on uh, what rohit jyotish professor rohit jyotish had to say along the lines of uh, the geopolitics of vaccine uh, so professor rohit you just spoke about uh, vaccine equity and do you think a lot of the geopolitics of vaccine distribution started to come into play because we have seen uh, countries like india not accepting uh, chinese made vaccines and the same has gone with us as well and they side many of the border disputes that are going on and uh, the many of the political tensions that exist with china and uh, this is the same with other countries as well uh, so do you think they should come in the way of uh, vaccine uh, vaccine distribution that is uh, national security concerns coming in the way of vaccine distribution or do you think there is a way to mitigate these concerns well there is certainly uh those kind of concerns that arose uh, at at different points in time uh, but it's kind of interesting also maybe if you just look at some of the data about how vaccine distribution has happened uh, earlier we were talking about the covax agreement and how it was set up to ensure that there is vaccine equity so uh, now even within covax you have many different ways of supplying the vaccines right you can either do it through donations or you can have some kind of a contracted supply on the other hand you can also have uh, supply via bilateral deals you can also have uh, direct donations and if you look at the data on all of this and i think the wto and the imf have a very good database where they accumulate this uh, uh, some statistics on this and what it says is that almost 70% of the vaccine exports have been through bilateral agreements that's about 3.5 billion doses and there were some via direct donations as well that's around 6.5% of the total share of vaccine uh, but if you look at covax as a supply arrangement what it tells you is that uh, the total uh, share that has happened through that covax is around 22 to 23% so uh when we talk about geopolitical tensions that certainly exists uh but at the same time there have been some countries who are clearly the leaders in vaccine production and distribution uh we, we also have some data on that if you look at the leading countries uh for instance there was some talk last year about india versus china when it comes to producing vaccines and also exporting it but if you look at the actual data on uh exports as a share of world exports uh, it's pretty conclusive that european union support uh, supplied most of the total number 
uh, of doses across the world around 39% china comes in uh, a pretty close second at 33 or 34% of the world exports india on the other hand is only like 2.4% uh, so vaccine diplomacy uh, while there's uh, nothing wrong with that if you see uh, what has happened globally is that multilateral agreements are increasingly hard to come by and the way uh, these crises as and when it happened it was mitigated was through these bilateral agreements and and most of the bilateral agreements had definitely like as akilesh has pointed out uh, uh, has some geopolitical colors if you see what happened maybe in south asia so pakistan sri lanka and bangladesh were some of the largest recipients of china's vaccine exports uh, and china had stepped in at a time when india had briefly halted exporting vaccines around april 2021 but india resumed exports after maybe around 6 months when the number of covid cases here started coming down and it coincided with the criticism of uh, the efficacy of chinese vaccines which a lot of uh, people were making in the world at time at that time and uh, since then many of these south asian countries shifted their attention towards depending on european union and the usa so now essentially the top 3 vaccine providers in the world are the eu uh, obviously eu the data is reported as eu that's why i'm saying eu uh, eu china and the usa so definitely there are geopolitical colors to vaccine distribution and equity and and uh, a, a large region like africa an entire continent is being left behind because of this uh, which is why i brought up the earlier point of uh, um, maybe focusing more on intellectual property rights because Uh, the only way africa can uh, address its concerns is if uh, firms and countries within africa have their own capacity to produce this as as a generic vaccine rather than depending on these large companies in the rich world to supply it to them so i agree with i agree with rohit i i think that we have a commonality of opinion on this so thanks very much Uh thank you professor Chana thank you professor Jyotish I think we will end this podcast now uh it has been a pleasure listening to both of you uh indeed on such topics as is vaccine nationalism vaccine diplomacy and uh, also I am going to come back to the same analogy of as a closed cycle between the corporates and state actors um I believe that uh, in conclusion I can say that yes we we saw uh you know what i would say the uh, in my personal opinion is the height of corporate participation in this pandemic uh, states themselves largely you know were inadequate or were slightly on the back foot when it came to uh, public welfare or public welfare with respect to vaccines uh, but private players definitely stepped up such as pfizer astrazeneca oxford johnson johnson and uh, in india like we had bharat biotech as well uh obviously the positives and negatives of it i believe would be a completely different podcast episode uh because as we all know you know corporates work for profit but uh yes they can always be a limit to their profits uh once again thank you so much professor jyotish and professor chinoy it has been a pleasure and uh, i thank my fellow research interns as well for uh, putting up such lively questions uh thank you all see you again i will be ending the recording